Good morning. This morning I am reading John 1:14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. Now, some of you may know uh, that we are going to be in John 1.14 for the next four weeks, and yes, we will be saying the same verse for the next four weeks, but let it sink in. Let it, let it get into your bones, into your soul. Um, John 1.14 is, in a verse, the incarnation. Christmas... Advent leading up to Christmas, this time of waiting, is a celebration of the incarnation. And so as we meditate on John 1.14, we think about the incarnation, it reminds us, one, that Jesus came. But it reminds us, again, that he is coming back. It's easy for us to forget that he is coming back. And when we think on that, our souls long for him to come back. So this waiting period up until Christmas Day, this moment that we take to celebrate the incarnation, this waiting period is this tapping into the the rhythm of our souls that there are seasons where we long for him to come back even more than in other seasons. Now, I just want to clarify the word incarnation. It it can be an intimidating word, but it's it's a concept and this big um, theological happening, right? So we have the incarnation. God became man. The Son of God became the Son of Man. Jesus, fully God, became Jesus, fully man, okay? Now, we also have the concept of incarnation, which is simply Entering into another person's world. The word literally means in the flesh. And so we enter into someone else's experience, someone else's circumstance, someone else's perspective. We can incarnate to one another. We value this concept of incarnation. We value other people incarnating to us, don't we? We find that the people we most trust to give us advice are people that have experienced what we experience, except for our parents, but we will go to someone who we trust, who we know that has been through what we've been through before for advice. When um, we are longing to feel seen and understood, it's the people that know what we're going through that make us feel the most seen, the most understood, the most known. Because incarnating gives space for mutual knowledge, knowing one another. And in knowing one another, there is space for love. And it's even possible, even if we haven't experienced someone else's um, pains or failures, it's even possible for us to incarnate to them, to enter into their world and just sit with them. Of all the friends of Job, the one that incarnated to him was the, the friend that was most meaningful in that book, right? Just the friend that just sat with him. Didn't say anything until he did. But we all long to have that friend to just sit with us in our mess, not try to fix us, not try to tell us how to get out of it, 
but just to be with us in the mess. We value, we put a high value on the concept of incarnation. And this is actually, um, Jesus instructed this in John 13, that we live this way, that we have this as a high value. He says, the whole world is going to know that you're my disciples when you incarnate to one another, when you love one another. And then he describes in Matthew, what is this love? Well, it's, you've loved me if you've gone to the prisons and you visited the prisoners, if you've clothed the naked, if you've fed the hungry. It's incarnating into people's world, knowing them and loving them in their world. We value this concept of the incarnation, but why do we value the incarnation? That article is important. The is important, right? If I were to say, I saw Rolling Stones last night, right? You'd think I'm just some weirdo watching stones roll down the side of a hill. That's my hobby. But if I said, I saw the Rolling Stones, then you'd know, right? That's a, a, a simple way to... illustrate the impact of the article, the. The incarnation is different. It's similar, but it's different from the concept of incarnation. It's different because John takes the time to pull this apart and show us the incarnation first. So why is this valuable? Well, for one, if you believe that Jesus came, died on a cross to save you from eternal separation from God, then the incarnation has to be true for you. And as your pastors, Brian and I feel very uncomfortable having an opportunity to teach you through a concept and saying no. Because if there's something so foundational to your structure of belief, something so foundational as the incarnation We need you to to understand that and know that so you can believe it, not just know it, because belief changes the way that you live. If you believe in the incarnation, you will live the incarnation. You will incarnate to others then, right? So if you're a believer, the the, the incarnation is foundational to your, your beliefs because Jesus had to come as a man. That's the only way it would work. If you're not a believer... The incarnation is usually one of those primary doubts. It's one of those first hangups. Well, I can't really fathom that God became a man and was still both. That doesn't make sense to me, but it's true. And so if you're not a believer, the incarnation, understanding the truth and the reality of the incarnation and the impact of it is important. And so why is the incarnation valuable to us? I'm going to come back to that because the incarnation is a necessity for us as Christians to believe that Jesus saves us from sin. Understanding and believing the incarnation is a necessity, and we have to understand why. So we're going to hold on to that question, and I'm going to give you all this background information. This is going to feel a little bit like a Bible study because we're going to dig into the words and the meanings behind them. And then we're going to come right back into sermon mode, okay? So first, we got to focus on the very first word, John 1, 14, and. You guys thought we were going slow 
by spending four weeks on one verse. We're going to spend some minutes on the word and. Anytime you see the word and, it's like seeing the word therefore. It's connecting you to what comes before it. And so we have to take in our minds when we're reading John 1.14, we have to also be including John 1, 1 through 13. And the, the bulk of this is in the first five verses. Look at John 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That's a fancy way of saying he made everything. There wasn't anything in existence that didn't pass through his hands. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John begins verse 1 in the same exact way that Genesis begins in verse 1. The Bible begins in the beginning. And John begins in the beginning on purpose. It's on purpose. He's saying, he's connecting the word, what he's about to explain, with the beginning. But then he says, the word was God. Okay, so God was in the beginning. That checks out with Genesis 1. But then he says, but the word was with God. Wait, so he was God and he was with God. So he's the same, but he's also different. You're losing me. But he connects it back to Genesis 1 to say, they are the same, but they are distinct. And they were both in the beginning. Now you won't look past and next time. When, when John says in the beginning, he's communicating that the word is God. And if we look at Colossians 1, we see very clearly, we have the privilege of having the whole council of scripture before us. We can see very clearly that who this word is, is Jesus. John gets to the point, but we know he's writing a story about Jesus in, in the way that he describes him, the word is Jesus. But let's look at Colossians 1, 15 through 17, just real briefly, because it very explicitly says what John says in chapter 1. He's the image of the invisible God. So he's the same, but he's distinct. The imprint of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, not created, but creator for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. Now, why does Paul in Colossians and John in chapter one, why do they take the time to be this explicit? See, the Holy Spirit's role, God, we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God, each with distinct roles. The role of the Holy Spirit is to point us to the Son, to show us the Son, that we would look on him 
and depend on him. And the Holy Spirit, through Scripture in John 1 and in Colossians 1, tells us the bigness of Jesus, the deity of Jesus, the godness of him, that he was before everything. He's not a creature. He's God, fully God, fully man. We have to understand the the massive godness, the deity of Jesus. We have to believe it because this is the only way that him becoming fully man matters. If he's not fully God, then him being fully man and dying on a cross doesn't matter. Lots of people died on a cross. But there was only one that mattered to us. The Spirit takes the time. He's thorough enough, not only in John 1, but in Colossians 1, so that we do not diminish the deity of Jesus when we think about him becoming a person. And here's just, I've got a little application sprinkled out through the sermon today. Here's the first one. This is how we read Scripture. We first look for God when we read Scripture. Where is God revealing himself to us? Where is he big in this story? What is his identity and his character in this passage? We first look for God. And there's a couple other steps before we even get to finding ourselves in Scripture. And if you need help reading the Bible, we've got a lot of people in this room at this church, got a lot of people that aren't here this morning, that, that go here, some of them are older than you. We have a lot of young people. Follow them. Ask them for help. They'll teach you. They'll show you how to look at words like and and find meaning in it. They'll, they'll help you ex- understand why is in the beginning, why does that match Genesis 1? We first look for God, and sometimes we need help. Ask for help. The word that John gives us in uh, verse 114 and then also in, in verse 1, in the beginning was the word and the word became flesh. Now, John is taking a culturally used word, a, a philosophical meaning. Um, in Greek, the word is logos. I don't know how to pronounce it in Greek. So you're just going to hear my... 2022 white guy version, Lagos. Now, that word is where we get the word logic. Lagos is how we think about the world and observe it. Now, in Greek uh, tradition, in first century um, Rome, this concept of Lagos was what the gods, because in Greek and Roman mythology and religion, there were many gods. It's what the gods agreed to allow us to see and observe and learn about in the world. So Lagos just drove meaning behind science and nature and math and language and history. What the gods permitted us to see and observe and understand It's this divine thread throughout all of creation that keeps us plugged in and connected to the divine. 
So John takes that meaning, and he doesn't say, yes, that's right, so let's take it to the next level. He says, I'm actually going to give you one better. I'm going to replace your meaning, because what is it in the word that God, because there's only one God, he doesn't use plural in verse 1. The word was God. What was it that God permits us to see and perceive and observe and understand? himself. The logic, the reason, the understanding, the learning, the knowledge that John is referring to is not philosophy. It's Jesus. It's God himself. This is why we read scripture first to see God in it, because it's God has revealed himself to us, not wisdom and knowledge. It actually works the other way around. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. True knowledge and intimacy with God gives us wisdom and reason and logic. So we talked about and, we talked about the word. Let's talk quickly about flesh. Now there's a lot of connotations of flesh. In the New Testament, there's two primary connotations. Um, so we have to look at who is using it, who's using this word for us to understand how they're using it. Paul, in his letters, usually when he uses the word flesh, he's talking about our broken, sinful humanity, just like our helplessness to do anything right and good. The flesh, the brokenness, our desires that lead us away from God. It's Almost always in Paul's writing, when he talks about flesh in relationship to humans, he's talking about sin. John, on the other hand, doesn't go in that direction. He uses the word flesh to talk about our limitedness, the limitedness of our bodies, what we are, and the limitedness of um, our souls, our minds, our um, emotions. So flesh to John is what we are, our skin and our bones, and how we are, how we relate to the world. Now the connotation that runs through both of these, because John does not use the word flesh to talk about sin. He doesn't say Jesus became human flesh, Jesus became sin. He does not say that because that is not true. There was no sin in Jesus. That's why him being fully God and fully man matters. But when he talks about um, flesh, he's, when John and Paul both talk about flesh, they're talking about weakness, limitation. It's that Philippians 2 that Brian read earlier that we'll read again later that he emptied himself. Not in the sense that he's no longer God, but he denied himself. He told himself no. He put boundaries on himself by taking the form of a human. The word becomes flesh. John, on purpose, puts the bigness, the deity, the, the incredible creativity and wisdom and power of the word right next to the flesh on purpose, 
to show how emphatic it was that Jesus descended. That God came down. He gave up his right to be unlimited to come down and put on human weakness. Philippians 2, I'm going to read again um, something that Brian read. Christ Jesus emptied himself, taking on the form not of a king, not of a ruler, not of a PhD, not of a lawyer, not of something we would think is powerful and good. And what would God be like on earth? But he took the form of a servant. He became human, so human that he even died like a human. The point is that Jesus knows our weakness. All, all the, the humanity that you feel, all the weakness and the boundary and the limitations that you feel. And guess what? It only increases as you age. Physically, we become more limited as we age, but then as we age, we also become more aware of all of our limitations. We become less convinced that we've got it all together. Jesus knows this weakness. The incarnation makes it possible for Jesus to know this weakness. And why is that important? Well, earlier we talked about and who are the, the people that we take the best advice from? Who are the people that we need most, that we need to be seen by and heard and understood most? The people who are like us, that know us, that have been through what we've been through, that know our weakness. You have a friend who not only will sit with you in your mess, but has been in your mess, has felt the mess. He's felt it so far, farther than you have, that he died in the mess. C.S. Lewis has this illustration. He talks about um, the, the weakness that we feel in temptation is like standing against wind. And the more we stand against wind, the stronger the wind gets. And the stronger the wind gets, the more weak we become, and we eventually fall over. Jesus withstood the wind. He withstood it farther than you could. He knows weakness more than you know weakness. The wind failed before Jesus failed. That's your second application. Sprinkle. For those of us that trust Jesus in his perfect life, in his sacrificial death, our weakness doesn't condemn us anymore. Our weakness reveals to us that Jesus not only has saved us, not only that he knows us, but that we're in the arms of the Father forever because of the resurrection. Jesus rising from the dead after dying in weak human flesh makes that possible for us. 
So now our weakness doesn't condemn us. It reminds us of how much we need Jesus, how much we need the incarnation. Okay, word study over. Let's remember that question that I asked at the beginning. Why is the incarnation so important to us? Why is it necessary? We understand that the concept of incarnation is important, it's valuable, but why is the incarnation necessary? I'm going to illustrate with Genesis 18 the answer to that question. Now, in Genesis 18, um, we hear the story of Abraham, this man that was chosen by God to be the father of the nation of people that he would choose. It was Abraham and his wife, Sarah, and they had no kids, but they had some of their relatives that were with them, and they traveled to this land that God promised them, this prosperous land, bountiful And he said, take up this land, but I've got to purify it first. And there were these two communities in this land, Sodom and Gomorrah. We're familiar with this story, some of us. Sodom and Gomorrah were the epitome of that Paul's version of flesh, that human sinfulness, that just led by our impulses and our desires and our lusts. That's what guides us through life. That's Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham had a relative there. And so God says, I've got to purify the land. And so I've got to start by destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham, like, think about this relationship with God. Moses does the same thing. Abraham begs God, please don't. Please don't kill those people. And God says, well, I got to. And Abraham says, okay, how about this? I'll make you a deal. If you find 50 people, 50 good and righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah, will you relent? And God says, yeah, I'll I'll relent if there's 50 good people in Sodom and Gomorrah. Because God knows what Abraham probably also knows. There's not 50 good people in those cities. And Abraham, having probably visited his relative in Sodom, is like, 50, that's a big number. God, what if there's less? And he goes all the way down. What if there's five? This is back and forth. What if there's five righteous people in Sodom? Will you please relent? Will you not kill them all? And God says, yeah. And Abraham's like, that was too easy. God, this is my last request. If there's one righteous person in Sodom and Gomorrah, will you relent? If there's one, and God says, yes. If there is one righteous person, I will relent. But there's not one righteous person. I use this illustration because a hundred times out of a hundred times, Sodom and Gomorrah get destroyed. There's not a single righteous person And we are those people. There's not a single righteous in and of ourselves. We deserve Sodom and Gomorrah's treatment. 
but there has been one who became that one righteous person. That's all we needed. One. The son said to the father, if you find one righteous person, will you save them all? And the father said, yeah, go. You are that one righteous person. Jesus became salvation in the way that Sodom and Gomorrah could not be saved. The incarnation is necessary. When we believe in the incarnation, we believe that not only did Jesus descend as fully God to become fully man, but that he died. He took on what Sodom and Gomorrah, what we deserved. Then we receive the gift of his relationship with the father. This ability to be fully restored in our souls and eventually in our bodies that we could be with him forever. God found one righteous person among us and he saved us. Earlier, I mentioned that the incarnation, this concept is valuable to us because it gives us the opportunity, it gives us space to know other people when we incarnate or people incarnate to us. It gives us the opportunity to know them or it uses knowledge that we have of them that makes space for love. There's a, there's a synonymous relationship or a symbiotic relationship between knowing and loving all throughout Scripture. In Scripture, to know is to love. The incarnation is, is how God has come to know us and love us. And this is important because we all know the pain of being known and rejected, right? So if, you're, if you go to an interview and, or maybe you're trying to date somebody and it just ends early, like you don't get past the phone interview or you don't get past the first date, you can always rely back on, because that, that hurts, that's painful. Being rejected, just period, hurts. But you always have the ability to rely back on, well, they didn't know me. They rejected me, but they didn't really know me. But to be known and then rejected, that's a, that's a different kind of pain. To be betrayed by a friend. Divorced by a spouse, abandoned by a parent, known, and they say, no, thank you. That's altogether a different category of pain. But it is in this knowing that God fully knowing us, accepts us, 
we have the gift of full acceptance after being fully known. Because we have these relationships with one another, and you guys know what this is like, right? When we have these relationships with other people where we're like, yeah, I'm, I'm just going to like give them the version of me that they like. I don't trust them in order to be fully known by them. And that's a self-defense, that's a safety mechanism because people are mean, because we've been hurt. But it's not that way with God. You cannot hide. He, he knows you more fully than you know you, yet he still accepts you, yet he still sought it necessary, not to just accept you, but to come find you to give up his son to make a way to have you back. The incarnation gives space for us to know God and be known by God and to love God and be fully loved by God. It's not only necessary for our salvation, it is entirely necessary for our relationship with Jesus because our salvation in him is Merely the gateway, not merely, but it is the gateway to our relationship with him. I'm going to summarize. I've got a quote. It's a long quote. So we're going to put it on the screen. We're going to take our time. We're going to breathe. This is uh, Charles Octavius Booth. He's an early 20th century African-American pastor theologian, and he wrote um, a systematic theology book for the, the lower class people who were not educated formally. And he wrote it for them on purpose because they're, the tradition of, um, at, he'll describe in the beginning of this book, it's called Plain Theology for Plain People. In the beginning, he said, um, black theology was only oral for a long, long, long time. And he thought that it was so important that we write these things down. And here's what he says about the incarnation. This is the summary of our sermon. We do not understand this mystery. That is how the son of God, the second person in the blessed Trinity, took upon him the seed of Abraham and was made in the likeness of men. But... There's two things that we do understand. Two things. First, that a being possessed of the divine nature and exhibiting superhuman excellences of mind and character has appeared in human nature. A perfect God-man exists. He has appeared. That's the first thing. Second, that such a being was when he came and still is the crying need and longing desire of mankind. We need an Emmanuel, a God with us. We need one righteous person. We need a mediator, one whose nature position and character might enable him to appear between God and man and lay hands upon both. 
such we now have in the God-man, Christ Jesus. The incarnation makes it possible to know and be known by God in order that we could be loved and love God. And so we're going to celebrate this morning. We've got communion um, on both sides of the room up front. We've got a table in the back. Band, if you'll come up. The bread and the juice represent the word not only becoming human flesh, but being broken in human flesh so that we would have life and love in him. If you believe that this is true of Jesus, would you come to the table and partake of the incarnation? Holy Father, God, would you reveal yourself to us? Would you fill us with more of your love? Would we see how necessary and important it is for you to have sent your Son to be fully God and fully man? Would you heal us? Would you restore us? Would you love us and accept us in him? And as we take communion, God, we confess that he is in us and that we are in him and we trust and we believe that we are found in him and we are accepted because you have found one righteous person.